Hello and welcome to a special edition of Asia in Depth. I'm Matt Schiavenza. Cases of the coronavirus are multiplying and spreading around the world. As of Monday morning, there are now over 110,000 cases in more than 90 countries. But it is still true that no part of the world has experienced anything like the impact suffered in Hubei province in China, Wuhan in particular. As the people of Wuhan sought help in medical care, and public health experts around the world were desperate for information, in late February, the World Health Organization led a delegation of officials from around the world to the city, as well as to other parts of China. Their mission, to visit healthcare facilities and to speak with physicians and professionals on the front lines of the outbreak, to study what was done well and what could have done better, and to take whatever lessons learned from China to those regions now affected around the world. Dr. Bruce Aylward led the WHO delegation. He has three decades of experience in fighting global health emergencies from polio to Ebola. Dr. Elward believes China's unprecedented lockdown of a major metropolitan area likely saved thousands of lives, and that the disease may well have plateaued in China. He spoke with Asia Society Executive Vice President Tom Nagorski from Geneva, where the World Health Organization is based, and where he was under self-imposed quarantine following his visit to Wuhan. Bruce Aylward, welcome to Asia In-Depth, and thanks so much for joining us. Uh, you and your colleagues went uh, to Wuhan and to other parts of China, already well aware, I would imagine, of the gravity of the situation. There had been, of course, so much news coverage and social media prior to your going, and some data uh, coming out from the Chinese. But what were the main things, you would say, uh, having been back now for a little bit, that you uh, and your colleagues learned from the trip uh, that you couldn't have known without being there uh, on the ground, as it were, in China? Well, there were three things, Tom, that we were particularly interested in understanding because they were going to be so important to inform uh, and, and, and help others outside uh, of China understand how to take forward the global response. And, and the first thing we really wanted to understand was the severity of the disease, because you've heard even in the uh, U.S. media over the last few days, a, a lot of variable accounts in that regard. The second thing we wanted to understand was what's driving the transmission of this? Because you can have a bad disease, but it doesn't transmit easily, or you can have a moderate disease that does, can be just as dangerous. And then the last thing we needed to understand was what actually is China doing to control this, and is it, is it really making a difference? So, so we really focused on the three of those. And, you know, just in a nutshell, uh, on, the, on the severity part, this is a serious disease. It is not flu. It's not as bad as SARS, but it is not seasonal flu. This will kill between 1% and 4% of the population that get exposed to it. And it's not only old people and people with other diseases. Also, young people die and die quickly for reasons that aren't, aren't predictable, frankly. And that was a really important uh, finding because it kind of anchored everything else. So the second thing that was important was understand what's actually driving the transmission. Um, and what we found is this is not flu. It doesn't transmit as easily as flu. And that was really important because it provides an opportunity to intervene. And that led us to the third point was what actually were China doing and was it really making a difference? And, you know, the, 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 the unanimous consensus of this group of experts, and, and it wasn't just WHO. This was we had NIH with us. We had CDC with us. Uh, Robert Koch Institute, a lot of top uh, uh, scientists. And it was clear that China, using the fundamental public health principles of 
case finding and contact tracing that really shoe leather epidemiology had changed the shape of their outbreak and prevented probably hundreds of thousands of cases, quite, quite, quite frankly. So three really big findings, and we can talk about specifics of them, but all of them now informing the global response. So just before we get to that, Bruce, the, the points you just made about it not being flu, it sounds like there's a good news thing there and there's a bad one. Am I correct that, that it's, it's the severity is the bad news and the, the ease of transmission or lack thereof is better? Is that right? Well, we went into this, Tom, with um, really people having a binary approach. Is this like SARS, another coronavirus, or is this like flu? And, you know, we came out of there saying this is neither. This is a novel coronavirus that doesn't kill at the same rate as SARS, um, and is in, uh, but is more transmissible than that. And as a result, that combination is, 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 can be devastating to an economy and a society. That, that's what we found. Bruce, in very broad terms. It has seemed to us that China's response has two very basic characteristics, and these may be too broad, but would love to hear your views, both having to do with the nature of the government there. In other words, a full-on lockdown that it was able to carry out of a huge metropolis, mandatory quarantines and so forth, building hospitals in no time. And then on the other hand, also a full-on lockdown, at least for a while, on information sharing and transparency. Is that a fair assessment, would you say? Um, I, I think it's a perspective from outside the country, be largely driven by the coverage of it. Um, but it is it is not um, reflective of how the majority of the transmission was stopped in China, frankly. Um, as you well know, there's 31 provinces in, in, in China. What um, you've just described is really something that happened in one province, in one city of one province, where they really got behind the eight ball, frankly. And that was because it was the first place affected and hit. But if if you look at the other 30 provinces, and they had big outbreaks, hundreds and even thousands of cases, right. they were able to manage it there using a much more conventional uh, approach and something which could be much more transferable, let's say, to, uh, to the West. Got it. And do you think as a lesson for the rest of the world, um, <laughs> circumstances and situations are so different, obviously, uh, in these various clusters we've seen. It seems, you know, uh, there's probably a case by case here with a place like Daegu in South Korea, uh, Lombardy in Italy, uh, this horrible stuff that's going on now in, um, in Washington State here in this country. Uh, wh what are lessons that are appropriate and worth learning from the Chinese approach, if any? Oh, multiple lessons. And and here, Tom, I'd be really careful because people keep talking to me about the Chinese approach. And the interesting thing is the group that ran a lot of the response, the, the, the key public health interventions, is the China CDC. It's modeled on the U.S. CDC. A lot of the people who actually did the case finding, contact tracing, this kind of work, they came out of what's called the Field Epidemiology Training Program, which is a program that was set up by the U.S. CDC. So I always find it curious when people who say, the Chinese approach, because they're applying what, uh, you know, something that came out of the Epidemic uh, Intelligence Service, which was built um, during the Cold War and just before, actually, into the CDC to be able to tackle exactly this kind of situation. So um, this, is, this is very much using approaches that were codified, frankly, a lot of it in, 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 in the U.S. But I think the big ones, the big takeaways, the first one is speed. You've, this is a respiratory pathogen. You have to go fast. So 
you've got to have your population involved. It's got to be your surveillance system. And I think the big message there is your population is not going to take it seriously and get engaged if they think it's a seasonal flu. If they understand that this is a serious disease, which was going to take a real toll on the elderly, but also on some healthy young people, then they're going to more likely to pay attention. And, and the population are adults. And, and the Chinese government were straight up with their population about the seriousness of this. And the third thing that they did, so, so the speed was one, engaging that population to help achieve that speed. But then they removed any kind of barrier that might inhibit the ability of the population to rapidly report and to get isolated and even spend time in an ICU if necessary. And as you may well know, Tom, in, in China, there's not the exact same universal health care. They have many different forms of health insurance there. Right. And the government said right at the beginning, when your insurance runs out, we're going to cover the cost because they didn't want people to stay out of hospitals and, and out of isolation. That was the that would have been the killer. I guess what I mean by, uh, and I always appreciate having been a journalist, that when you're far away, your judgments are not as good. That's why it's great to have you on the line. But by, by a sort of Chinese approach, I mean a couple of things. For example, it is very, very difficult to imagine, uh, I just let's say in this country, a... Very, the speed that you just spoke about, a very rapid clampdown on an entire population, much less a population of 15 million in the way it happened there. On the other hand, it's also uh, hard to imagine that a whistleblower or some early, uh, um, you know, people who were speaking about an issue early on uh, would be, quite frankly, muzzled in the way that some people were in the early stages in, in China. So that, I guess, is, is where my question was coming from. Yeah, and, and the reality there is you don't have to do a clampdown. And in fact, China didn't do a clampdown in, in the vast majority of the areas that got infected. And the, the, when we talk about speed, what I mean by speed is being able to find a case very, very quickly and then being able to get that case tested, proven, and, and, and then isolated. If you can do that, if you can isolate the cases, find them, if you can quarantine people who've been very close contacts or even have them stay at home and just support them, you're going to going to stop this in 99% of the cases. You don't have to go to extreme measures. And so when I say speed, it wasn't the speed of lockdown or clampdown. It's just the speed of doing basic epidemiology and public health work fast. And if you haven't got testing capacity in every single state and you know county out there where they can get to it really quickly, you're going to lose a lot of time. If people have to think twice about how much it's going to cost, you're going to lose time. That's, those are the barriers that you need to address. And once right. China got that part right, they never got in trouble again in terms of lockdowns and, 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 and those sorts of uh, pieces that were the terrible part of the response that even in China they detest. So I noticed, Bruce, you've just there taken to using the past tense in terms of talking about the Chinese response and, and the situation there. Uh, we have seen, obviously, a steep drop in, in recent days in the number of new cases in China and fatalities. Do you feel, do you and your colleagues feel that... Uh, um, that those numbers, first of all, are reliable and that they have now plateaued and are, are, are sort of coming back to something approaching normalcy in China. Well, that was a point we paid a lot of attention to because we understood the concerns about whether or not we were seeing the real picture. Now, in, in epidemiology and disease control, what you're interested in more than a specific number is a trend. So you spend a lot of time paying attention to trends. And there, there's a lot of corroborating data that demonstrated that, yes, there's absolutely no question that the cases are plummeting in, in, in the country. 
So when we were there, we would meet with docs, for example, and we'd say, and, and they were very frank. They would say, look, at one point, you know, we had people in hotels. We had them here. We had them there. You know, there's just no space. And the great thing now is we can get them in because we've got beds opening up. And this was falling cases. The fever clinics, the same thing. But the most telling thing, Tom, was um, you remember you're, you're hearing about this drug that's being tested, this, this uh, drug that might be promising the right. um, remdesivir. And I spoke to the chief uh, uh, you know, investigator, who's someone I know while I was in Wuhan, and he said, look, the biggest problem we're having now is enrolling because we're, the number of new patients has just dropped so much. So there's a lot of corroborating information, um, also in terms of exportations, et cetera, that just demonstrate you know, that the trend is real. There may be missing some cases, some clusters, but you do everywhere. The, the big picture is, is definitely right. Now, just before we leave Wuhan and the rest of China and come to other parts of the world, Bruce, uh, I wonder if you can say a, a couple of things about your experience in Wuhan in terms of what you saw of how people, whether ill or not ill, by the way, were uh, taking care of themselves and or being taken care of. Uh, it is a staggering thing, again, from a distance to imagine a population that large, uh, whether they are unwell or whether they're just confined to their homes for this period. What were some of your, less as a public health official and just more as a human being, uh, your reflections on what that was like in that city? <laughs> I like to think public health officials are, you know, the real human beings. <laughs> I, I didn't mean it that way. Right. I know you didn't. I couldn't resist. But, um, yeah, Tom, it, it was stunning. This was the second time I've been to Wuhan. I was there 25 years ago for another disease, uh, uh, dangerous disease and eradication program. So I've been to the place twice. And the last time it was against polio, a disease that we had a vaccine for. And, you know, people were protected. It was a bustling, uh, industrious um outgoing, uh, hard-charging city, I have to say, back then. And when I came this time, I arrived, um, and, and we had to take a, a bullet train, uh, a special one, because all the trains were stopped into uh, into Wuhan. We arrived, you know, very late in the evening in the pitch dark, and we got out of our this, this you know, modern bullet train, which was running with all the shades down, stopped for, you know, three minutes to get us off and then sealed the platoon again and left. And when we got off, it was in this cavernous, you know, ultra modern and beautiful train station, just empty, normally would be full, tens of thousands of people probably moving through this main transit hub. And then as we came up out of the uh, train station, um, you know, all around us were the skyscrapers and, 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 and huge apartment blocks, which are the reality of this, you know, again, hyper modern city. And the boulevards were empty and the lights were on in these places, but, but there was this eerie stillness to the place. And you knew that in these buildings were 15 million people. Um, extraordinary. And over the course of the couple of days we were there, I spoke to a lot of people, our translators, um, people who were in, in some of the facilities, uh, people who were supporting the facilities, etc. And of course, you had the party folk who would give you the, the line. But then as I spoke to the really average Chinese people, the overwhelming message was, this is hard, but this is our responsibility. We are part of, you know, that societal good. Trump did um, always. And 
you know, people often ask me about the fear, fear of government, fear of the police, fear of this. And, 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 and maybe that was there, but the fears I heard all the time were, number one, of this disease, and number two, of failing to stop it from spreading beyond Wuhan to the rest of China and to the world, that they had a responsibility and a duty. Um, and, and for me, you know, as a human, I, I, was, I, I was humbled by what I saw of the very average Chinese and the very, you know, average docs who were, and, and nurses who were battling this disease. It was, um, and that was a long way away from the officialdom of, 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 of China. And I, I was just really, really struck by these people. That's really interesting. I, I do want to ask, by the way, before we, and after this, we'll, we'll come to other parts of the world, but you yourself uh, and your colleagues from the WHO and the other organizations, how did you protect yourself going in and out of uh, um, uh, some of the healthcare facilities in Wuhan and elsewhere? So we did exactly what we advise everybody else to do. We washed our hands, um, careful uh, respiratory hygiene. We had to wear a mask because we're in China and everyone wears a mask, although we don't advise that as necessary. Um, we uh, social distancing. We were always a couple of meters or a meter apart from each other. Um, we never shook hands, embraced uh, any anything like that or touched any of the surfaces, et cetera, though that's not really a big issue. We never came in direct contact with patients. We would always be through screens or by video or with contacts. So all of those basic public health measures, even when we ate them, we ate at separate tables or we ate in our rooms separate from the others on the team, on our trains, on our buses, on our, our uh, uh, other conveyances, one person per row. We, we, we practiced what we were preaching. Right. Good to hear. OK, let's come to other places and uh, we don't have to tick them all off. I mentioned some of them a moment ago and none of them uh, mercifully to date anyway um, have, have numbers approaching either uh, uh, case numbers or fatalities like Wuhan. But um, we have clusters now. Uh, we have several in this country, in the United States. And I wonder uh, this may be a difficult one to to answer directly, but what's the trigger uh, in your view uh, when a cluster appears, whether it's in Sno Snohomish County in Washington, in Lombardy in Italy, we've had a family in their synagogue um, and, and maybe slightly larger community just outside New York City here. When these clusters or hotspots, whatever you call them, arrive, what's the trigger for locking down an area, a city, a community, a state maybe, uh, in anything approaching what we saw happen on a grand scale in China? Well, I, I don't. Um, I don't think we're 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 anywhere near that in any of the places that that, that I've seen. You know, what you're really looking for, though, is um, it's a combination of the sheer number of cases, because that becomes just a basic management issue, as well as what's the relationship between these cases. Because as long as you're talking about clusters, you probably have a manageable situation um, where you would want to um, be screening people and making sure that they didn't have fevers. Et cetera, and we're, we're, we're necessarily, um, uh, uh, you know, infecting other areas. You got your population hyper, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, informed, so to speak. But uh, as long as you're talking clusters, generally you've got a situation that can be managed by, you know, educating the population, finding the cases, finding their close contacts and, 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 and quarantining or having them self-monitor in, in a safe place. And then finally, if necessary, starting to interrupt the, uh, you know, what we call the mass gatherings, because this is a disease that is going to transmit. It's a function of 
um, the amount of exposure you have, how close you are to people that have this, and for how long. So any, you know, uh, uh, gatherings, you know, like the church events that we've seen, like, you know, some of these institutions, um, some of the conferences, you really want to start thinking about stopping those quite early. And, you know, those are the measures that are usually going to get this under control. Uh, you, you know, envisaging a need to shut down cities or states, that that's, uh, I think we're quite a ways away from that. And, and frankly, we'd have to think through do you is there really a trigger for that right here in the united states at least and this is all anecdotal i think for now um you know i guess this depends a little bit on one's own evaluation of risk but one thing that's been a bit troubling is just a sense that uh, perhaps we as a government or um, whether local state federal aren't quite on top of this by a long shot and by that i mean uh, well, here in the New York area, there's a lot of talk of uh, uh, the very, very, very low number of, of screenings and tests that have been carried out. Uh, we obviously had some problems early on with testing kits. Uh, yesterday, I saw that a reporter who'd been covering the coronavirus uh, situation in Italy uh, uh, had come back uh, to the United States, sailed through customs and immigration, no questions asked, never mind any tests. Um, and that, of course, leads to a feeling, well, there may be clusters all around us and we don't know. Is that, um, is, is that being too worried uh, or, or do we have some, some legitimate concerns in terms of uh, just what's, what's not known yet here? Well, this is where I'm going to start sounding like a broken record, unfortunately, Tom, <laughs> people who have to listen to this. But, you know, there's there's this um, there's a couple of myths out there, or, or if not myths, there are at least, um, you know, poorly supported uh, uh, propositions, let's say. And one of the ones I hear all the time is that there's all this mild disease or there's all of these people out there, you know, with no symptoms who are going around infecting other people. Um, there aren't. There, there, there are a number with mild disease. About 80% of this uh, disease is going to be mild at presentation. But there's not a lot of what we call asymptomatic people. And this comes back to the point. Here's the broken record. Make sure people know what the signs and symptoms are and eliminate any barrier to them getting tested to know whether or not they have the disease. So um, I, I keep hearing people are so worried about all these people who aren't exhibiting symptoms. You know, it, it's like the Willie Sutton principle, right? Why do you rob banks where the money was? Look for the cases that are symptomatic, that are coughing, that have got a fever. They're the ones with the most virus. Their closest contacts are going to get the disease. And if you work from those basic principles, what we've seen in most places is that's going to take the heat out of this thing. And and, and slow it down and get it stopped. So in the in the U.S., I really think the key thing is making sure the population understand this disease, understand that it's serious, and that the government needs their help in finding, uh, you know, if they if they have a, a disease themselves, their loved ones, their families, and making sure that they can get tested quick so that they don't get bored and stay at home and infect other people. I mean, the, it's it's really the basics, and it's the stuff that historically the U.S. has been great at when it comes to uh, communicable disease. You guys wrote the book on this stuff. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I should say, Bruce, uh, we don't mind the broken record. It's worth hearing again and again, probably for, for many of us who are not in the uh, in the profession. But let's just do a quick maybe round of risk assessments. Uh, the, the airline industry is getting crushed. And I don't want to turn this into an economic conversation by a, a long stretch. Uh, many of us here at the Asia Society have canceled uh, 
uh, travel to places that aren't necessarily uh, exhibiting much of this at all. Um, is that uh, is that appropriate right now uh, for people to just uh, stay in their home cities and states and countries and not get on airplanes? People should always manage their risk in a way that they're comfortable. So sometimes governments are going to say, look, it's fine to travel, but they're going to make an individual decision that, you know what, risk I don't want to take. And I completely respect that. Um, And usually what the governments are doing are put in place those barriers where people are going to take too much risk. But um, in a situation like this, uh, we've got to understand that people are going to judge their own risks and and how much uh, uh, they want to take. And so I I, I really... uh, Uh, respect that. And in terms of the economics, which you said, you know, it is in part an economic conversation. This has can be devastating to health, but it's also devastating to economies. And, you know, those are interlinked, of course. So um, it's fine to talk about the economics of these diseases. Okay. And sticking with uh, with risk assessment, and you may again say these are personal things, but it's hard for individuals and, by the way, for organizations and institutions to, to really measure levels of risk. Uh, I ride the subway every day, millions of my fellow New Yorkers. So when people say, you know, an airplane can be an incubator for this sort of thing, I, I don't feel too nervous about it, but I think about it now. Um, I come to a, an only moderately crowded office, and we have public programs and gatherings and events here. Taking those, taking those one at a time, and and you know there 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 are cluster. There is a cluster, but it's it's thirty miles away from here. I'm not particularly nervous about any of those things. Should I be? Well, you want to be conscious of them, number one, and understand them, and otherwise you're not able to manage your risk, so that's the first thing. And you want to be able to understand that, okay, in a subway, you're usually there for a relatively short period of time. This is not all day. This is half an hour or 10, 15 minutes, whatever it is on the, on the subway, and people are coming off and on. But usually um, what we've seen with this disease is, like I was saying, it's that duration. Like when we look at a lot of the clusters that are happening, they're in institutions, they're in households, they're in groups that work work closely together. So the risk, um, you, you know, you're riding the subway unless you get widespread community transmission. But at this point, it's, it's probably quite a low risk activity. And even when you're on an airplane, remember the studies, and, and I'll use flu as a comparator here because it's a respiratory pathogen, is the risk is not to everyone on the plane. It really is a function of a couple of rows in front, a couple of rows behind, because these are airborne droplets that drop pretty quickly. They don't go very far. So, um, you know, the, 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 these are all relatively modest risks unless you truly have a full-blown uh, uh, um, uh, transmission in, in, in a place in, at the level of the community. Or if you're a high-risk individual, obviously, right, uh, with lung capacity issues or something like that. Yeah. There you want to take additional precautions, uh, for, for sure. You don't want to expose yourself. But again, um, every and this is where we are always very careful as a World Health Organization. We can say this is what we know, but we also respect countries, um, uh, governors, obviously, in a state and a mayor in a city. They're, they're going to run their city to their you know culture and 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 local reality. So we have to respect that as well. You know, and and New York, you've had some great public health people and some great leadership generally. Bruce, coming back to the global picture, uh, we have even those of us who are not in the public health profession learned very early on in this uh, situation that we have to watch that fatality rate. And I think we also all learn pretty quickly that it comes down naturally as you start to hear of more cases that aren't so severe. Um, where are we now? As I believe we've just crossed the 100,000 
case threshold around the world. Um, can you say with some comfort where you think uh, the lethality of uh, the coronavirus, this one will land? It's definitely going to land over 1%. It'll probably land somewhere in the 1% to 2%, between 1% and 3% around 2 that, that That's what it looks like. Um, the challenge here, Tom, uh, is you know a lot of the data, and the big driver of those numbers, of course, is China. And people look at China, and, and they generally think, oh, okay, well, that's China, and you know we live in the U.S. with great capacity and great services here. But in China, I was struck by... Um, the quality of the medical services there and the level of their services, you know, they had hospitals full of ventilators and sophisticated uh, machines to help replace the lungs when the lungs aren't working, things we called ECMO machines in every designated hospital that were managing these. So China became very, very good at keeping the people with this disease alive long enough for their lungs to recover. So I think we have to be still very careful extrapolating from China to the rest of the world. You know, look at Italy. I mean, the, the numbers are high already. They're, they're at 3% if you just do what we call a crude mortality ratio. It's probably lower right. that because there's lots of mild cases, but it's not, uh, it's not under 1% there. And in terms of the preparations, preparedness of some of these other places, Italy, South Korea, pockets of the United States, what are, where, where are the glaring shortfalls that you've seen that maybe cause uh, some of those problems? Do we not have uh, as many of these ventilating uh, machines? Uh, are there other things uh, um, that, that may be uh, at fault here? Well, I, I find first the populations aren't prepared. We've known about this disease for two months, and populations still don't know what the disease is, And uh, number one. Number two, we can't test them, um, which, again, we've had months to, to get in place. And it doesn't matter. This isn't looking backwards. We are where we are, so we've got to address those things fast. And then you get to the beds, to the ventilators, to the um, uh, 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 other measures. But there's lots of ways um, to quickly jury-rig a system to be able to manage large number of patients, but you have to be thinking that way. Most hospitals think, okay, we have three or four isolation beds. No, you have to think, how are you going to close off that ward and make the whole ward of all 40 beds a, uh, a, a an isolation ward, not not a room? Um, you, know, you have to think on that scale. And again, hopefully you'll never need it, but you have to think that way. You have to be a step ahead of this virus. And, and to use the word you just used, hopeful, how do we know when it's over? in a community, in a country, or ebbing at least. Again, we see China talking uh, and taking, I guess, some ginger steps toward normalcy. Uh, when uh, is it when we hit a plateau? What, what will we uh, see and know and think, okay, uh, we're okay now? I like the way China is approaching this. What they're saying is we don't know if this virus is going to disappear completely, if it's going to surge back, or if it's going to remain in the community at low levels. And so what they're doing is they're preparing to be able to run their communities with this disease if necessary. And I think that's a pretty pragmatic approach we should all be thinking about, because it's pragmatic to think we could have low-level disease. We may have to find cases, manage cases, isolate them quickly while we develop vaccines, etc. But we uh, should not be planning for it just to disappear into thin air. That, that's wishful thinking. It may do that, but that's not a careful way to plan and be prepared for this disease as we go forward. 
And one last question for you, Bruce Elward. You've, uh, I guess you're in a, in a quarantine mode yourself since you're back from China. But, but where do you and your, your colleagues at the World Health Organization go next? I assume there's, uh, you know, everywhere that there's a cluster or an outbreak could be the next WHO mission, right? Do you know where your travels will take you next? Well, actually, right now I'm supporting a team in, in Iran remotely, I'm supporting a team also in some of the work that's being done in Italy. And then also this morning, I spent a lot of half of my morning on the on the phone with uh, with with the Australia Public Health Service. And uh, and, and I'm, I'm, I, I really think we're going to have to look at how much of this can we do remotely and walk people through things, because every time we go in and out of a country, we face quarantines. Um, and, you know, if we get our top team quarantined um, quickly, uh, we're we're it's really going to slow down our ability to help the world. So Monday, when I'm up uh, 14 days or up, we'll, we'll, we'll see what the world looks like and if I can help somewhere on the ground or if I continue to work remotely. It'll, it'll really depend. Well, uh, as the rest of us slow down our travels, uh, we are grateful for yours and your colleagues. Uh, Bruce Aylward from the World Health Organization, thanks so much for being with the Asia Society today. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you for listening to Asia In-Depth. You can subscribe to this podcast and check out past episodes on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. And to keep up with everything going on in the world of Asia Society, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Matt Schiavenza. See you next time. <laughs>